0: Hello, my name is Will Daddario. This is a project called Thinking Will. And uh, on the one hand, I am a thinking will. On the other hand, that title comes out of a thought process I've been having lately, racking my brain trying to figure out what is going to help us get out of all this chaotic nonsense and noise that we're experiencing today. In the social and political world, what is going to help? Thinking will. I think, I believe thinking will help. I'm not saying it's the only thing that that we need. I'm saying that collaborative, experimental, creative thought is necessary in these times. And uh, in these six different episodes, I'm going to think out loud extemporaneously on six topics, topics that I've asked friends and colleagues to offer up, and I went through and picked six kind of at random, Um, and uh, I'm just going to talk until I really don't have anything else to say about it at the moment, and um, I hope that you participate in some way, either just listening attentively or responding in some way. Um, But this type of live thinking, we need this now. We need this type of live watching somebody create thought on the moment and trying to go deep into something. I will say that I am inspired by John Oliver. Um, I do think that what he's doing is a great public service at the moment. Um, this is what I'm doing. I mean, this is, is different because it's not uh, trying to be funny and I'm not intersplicing anything um, that I'm going to say with jokes. Uh, and there's no visuals here. It's all just going to be audio because I got like to focus on the listening. But the idea of actually dedicating a pro, you know, rather prolonged period of time to one topic is something that I think is important. And uh, I hope that all of us maybe help do that more. Okay, so... The first topic is uh, a combination of two topics, actually. The first two topics that I received as suggestions. One, uh, the very first one, I think, was Bernard Stiegler and the notion of Pharmacon. And the second one was uh, conspiracy theories. And it struck me right away that uh, I should talk about the Pharmacon of conspiracy theories. So uh, let me explain what any of these things mean. Um, because I, I, I'm not speaking to a. Uh, I don't imagine that I'm speaking to a specific audience. I don't want to only appeal to academics, and I don't want to speak in any jargon. I want uh, to talk in such a way that anybody listening to this could, you know, tune in and respond. So, with that in mind, um, I'll, let me tell you the limited things that I know about Bernard Stiegler, just just as a, a shout out to Chris Frias who. Uh, suggested this topic, you know, Bernard Stiegler is not on the, perhaps the top list of names um, that you encounter in philosophy classes. Well, certainly not in philosophy classes, but in philosophy conversations. Um, he, but what I'm about to say will make you interested. He was a, a bank robber. Uh, I think that he was a successful bank robber for a few times, and then he wasn't, and he was caught, and uh, he went to jail and in jail philosophy found him and he started to think and when he got out of uh, jail he went on to write many books and have a huge uh, <laughs> huge career in philosophy he was a student of two giants of the french male philosophy world jean uh, francois leotard and jacques derrida and uh, i'm guessing that it was with derrida that he got into this uh, uh, investigation of the Pharmacon, because Derrida is also known for writing about this. And for those of you who do not know who Jacques Derrida is, he is um, famous for creating a a brand of philosophy called deconstruction um, that really tries to pull the carpet out from underneath the certainty of language so that we should be far less certain that we know what we're talking about when we use certain words, especially certain key words. Um, That's a a really schematic, vague overview, but um, it's perhaps enough if you don't know who he is. Stiegler worked in the same line, and they both turned their attention onto this really interesting um, ancient Greek word, pharmakon. The pharmakon... Is uh, I think it translates in most medical texts like Galen, um, ancient Greek medical texts, as medications. The pharmakon is a a medication. But it has a uh, sort of oppositional meaning. It it means two different things. It means remedy, but it also means uh, poison. And from this we get the... That which ails you may also cure you. Oh, maybe a contemporary version of this is a little bit of the hair of the dog that bit you. The saying that uh, if you're really hungover the next day, you should have a beer or something stronger in the morning. A little bit of the hair of the dog that bit you to make you better. Pharmacon works sometimes in a similar way where a little bit of something that might actually be poisonous to you may be precisely the cure that you need. And Derrida, Stiegler, they went around and around on this trying to explore this opposition or we might say this dialectical um, tension within the word pharmacon. Stiegler turned his attention, I think, to, um, most notably to the, to the realm of technology in contemporary life. And, uh, he, I think he called it technics though. He had, he had a specific word for it. I'm not a Stiegler person, so I, I don't know exactly, but technics, technology, he said, you know, the old question, well, is tech, all this technological advancement, is this good or bad for us? And he was like, hmm, pharmacon, you know, it is both. Um, it is something that helps us very much cre- do things that were not even thinkable. Like the computer processing power of the phone that you have near you or in your pocket right now is probably stronger than the computer setup that took, uh, you know, the first manned mission to the moon. Um, that type of thing. Uh, unbelievable power and capability and technology. And, of course, um, uh, th- so many things could go wrong and do go wrong with the spread of myths and disinformation. Now very easy to do through the um, through uh, social network, which is made possible, of course, by certain technologies. And I think that Stiegler also had in mind, with technology, not the idea of like hardware and computers and stuff like that, not only that, but other types of social technologies, one of which is uh, memory. Nemotechnics, the notion of a, a technology of memory, which is something that's very old. But in the contemporary moment, <clears throat> the way that we might wrap it into the Pharmacon discussion is to say, you know, are you really sure that you're remembering something correctly? How have you been taught to remember something? Is there a certain program that you did not design running in your memory that actually helps you to remember things in a certain way? Or perhaps also to misremember in a certain way? Or perhaps to strategically forget certain things? Um, so, as to go on with your life and not get bogged down in, say, you know, just the total despair that's uh, shouting out from all the corners of, of the globe at every given moment. All this might be wrapped into this larger thing called the technology of memory. And it too is a pharmacon. Take that example about strategically forgetting. If you want to get out of bed in the morning, you're probably not going to want to think about all the starving children that are everywhere, all the little people who are being murdered um, across the world at the moment. You're probably not going to want to think about that. So you use your little memory software to strategically not think about or to forget about that. And uh, that allows you to go on you know, through your day. And maybe you're doing some really good stuff uh, during the day, things that make a difference, a tiny difference in the world. So on that respect, it's good. And also, you know, there's a downside to not thinking about all of the terrible things that are happening. We delay our empathy, we're stunted entirely, we close off emotionally, we turn off certain sensors to the outside world that might otherwise bring us great intuitive knowledge. Okay, so maybe you understand. I don't have to go into any more detail. Um, but, uh, right, that's half of today's conversation. The other half is conspiracy theories, and comes nicely out of a conversation of social media. Since very recently in the last few days, we've seen an explosion in the United States, although perhaps around the world, um, of uh, uh, very, well, how do you call it, um, unstable, um, uh, mentally unstable... Um, conspiracy theory known as QAnon Uh, there's even now a uh, likely member of the House of Representatives in Georgia is going to be elected who um, pledges allegiance to the QAnon um, belief that ties uh, Hollywood and the Democratic Party together in a ring of child abuse for satanic purposes and I wish I was making that up, but I am not. And um, um, this all links to a larger conspiracy about a deep state that uh, that none other than the president of the United States is is trying to root out in Arthurian heroic style. Um, it's like a sort of alternate universe of um, what I personally believe is happening. It's like the in it's the upside down of of what I. Believed to be the case but um so the question here is is not whether or not i I believe this um but uh how precisely might we think about these conspiracy theories today and conspiracy theories conspiracy theories generally if we bring in the notion of the pharmacon well let me go back to um what i was saying about uh mentally unstable you know is it okay to refer to people who believe this, uh, or, or accurate to say that people who believe these ther- therapy, uh, these conspiracy theories, are, are are ill in some way? I think so. I think it's at least beneficial to um, use that terminology for a little bit. And I think we have to use it if we're going to talk about the pharmacon, because as you remember, pharmacon is a medication of some kind. So maybe it's interesting to talk about what do these conspiracy theories attempt to cure or heal? And at the same time, what poison do they allow in? And then the other side of the dialectic, what is the poison of these conspiracy theories, and is there anything, though, that this poison might be good for, um, for the general populace, say, people who do not believe? Is there a way socially that the poison of QAnon could actually lead to some type of healing? Um, Both directions of, of thought there are necessary for pursuing the dialectic of the pharmacon. And so, um... Let's think about it like this. Um, first, the the poison. No, let's do the first the cure. The cure. What do conspiracy theories cure? Well, John Oliver made a good um, point uh, a few episodes ago talking about conspiracy theories, and he says that some conspiracy theories basically try to institute order into what is otherwise just a chaotic world. Something happens um, that just seems beyond... Uh, the scope of understanding. Someone is murdered. Somebody that many people adore is murdered, or and, or even just like struck by lightning, or, um, you know, died in an accident. Say someone beloved dies in an accident. It seems so meaningless. It, it, it seems so just haphazard for that to happen, that we we search in our minds for. A more concrete reason, an order, a, a something that, that must be an answer for why? Why did this happen? And no matter how convoluted that answer might be, it's better than there being no reason, because otherwise we live in a meaningless world, and it's uh, it's tough to to do that. Tough to get out of bed in the morning if you think you live in a meaningless world. So you sometimes we sometimes abide by these complex answers to situations in order to believe that there is some sort of order in the world. I think John Oliver was right about that. I don't think that's precisely what's happening with the QAnon conspiracy. Because I think the other type of cure, we're going to call it that for a second, the cure, the remedy, um, is linked very much to a sort of disease of fear. People fear that their way of life is going to be taken away from them. They fear that a privilege that has been bestowed upon them will no longer pay dividends in the same way going forward. And this fear works on a, a deep level beyond rationality. We call it irrational, but not in the sense necessarily of insanity or anything like that. It just works in a way that beyond language, beyond ordered sense. And um, You want to inoculate against that fear. So the way you do it is you start to tune in to people saying that they, they have a cure for you. And I think the QAnon followers think that this imaginary Q person, this person granted Q-level intelligence clearance, working, you know, in the United States government, they think that this person sees a bigger picture that they just can't possibly see, and they don't actually need to worry. Their fears are not necessary because everything will shake out. Everything will work out in the end. <clears throat> it's not enough, though, to just know that to be the case. It's like you need a constant drip of this reassurance. You need to, to or maybe even more than a drip, maybe you need to, like, mainline this assurance all the time. So you plug into social networks that feed it to you. And in this way, you think that you're being cured of these fears, fears that you're not even fully rationally aware that you have, or you wouldn't even call them fears yourself. And that's one side. But that fear is clearly also a poison, because um, I would say that what it's doing is it's producing a just a toxic level of ignorance. Um in an environment where ignorance was already at toxic levels, there is this great term by Charles Mills, epistemologies of ignorance. Basically, white people, he would say, he says, white people have a vested interest in knowing the world wrongly. We must maintain this ignorance in order to continue thinking that, for example, the world is made for white people for us, that uh, people who are not white are in some way inferior. We have vested reasons, historically tended reasons for manicuring this type of ignorance. That's what's going on, I think, in the QAnon conspiracy theory world. Anything that feeds that ignorance, I would say, is not a cure, but is a poison. What is perceived as a cure here is also a poison. And uh, there's one dimension of of the pharmacon. But I think that illness is another important thing, because if we just sort of spin out this terminology a little bit more and look at the broader picture, my mind goes immediately to this opioid epidemic in the United States, where another medication that was intended to cure or heal in some ways becomes a poison through addiction. And that clearly in the United States... Uh, people are predisposed to developing an addiction to painkillers because there is so much pain to kill, so much to strategically forget, so much that you would prefer not to think about or remember. Those types of mental issues running in the background certainly collaborate in the physical addiction to things like Oxycontin. And don't we see something similar in the Pharmacon of the conspiracy theory. People get hooked on it. It's like, in order to maintain, in order to keep the fears at bay, you have to keep getting the drip or the mainline of the conspiracy theory. And what does that do over time? But develop an addiction to it. And uh, in some ways, I'd say then that the QAnon is the sort of social oxycodone. Um, Conspiracy theories more generally might be that. I don't know to what degree we could uh, apply everything that I'm saying to conspiracy theories in general, and certainly there are some conspiracy theories that um, do not fit this model that I'm talking about. But the, the QAnon situation that's in the news and on my mind right now I think certainly does. But, of course, there's this little nagging voice in my head that says, this is some unfortunate truth about conspiracy theory. Um, And this is a tough one to sort of put into words, but I'll, I'll try it here. The truth of all conspiracy theories is that there is a conspiracy, but it's produced by the people who maintain the conspiracy theory discourse? So it's not actually the content of said theory, like it's not the details of the deep state that is the conspiracy. It's the drive to spread that information that is the conspiracy. And thus, behind every conspiracy theory is a real conspiracy. <laughs> Do the people who create that conspiracy theory intend it? To be that, probably in some cases, yes. Maybe in some cases, no. Because if people actually believe it and they they talk about it, I don't know that they're trying necessarily to to do anything, um, you know, intentionally. As much as they just want to be heard and have people hear them. But this is the darn truth of of the conspiracy theory: is that yes, there is something there. It's just not what people think it is. Uh, so I don't think that we're going to get rid of conspiracies any conspiracy theories anytime soon. I think we're gonna we're gonna see that. I do think, though, that the pharmacon is an excellent sort of analytical model to use for for thinking through things like this in order not just to toss it aside, not just to think, oh, my God, these people are, are nuts. I, I don't have anything to say about it. No. Think about how the dialectic spins within it. What do people think they're trying to cure? How is it actually poisoning them? How does it actually poison? And is there actually a cure for the rest of us for any of this? It seems to me that if there's a cure to the rest of us, to the poison that is the QAnon conspiracy theory, it's this. It's being able to think in more detail about it so as to have deeper discussions with other people about complex ideas. Ideas linked beyond rationality, linked deeply to irrational impulses, things such as fear. In other words, what's going to help us get out of all this? Thinking well.